This is another one of those ones that I was kind of hoping to stream, but in hindsight I'm kind of glad I didn't, because there's basically no voice acting, which means the only way to get through this would be for me to voice everything. And there is an enormous amount of dialogue in this game. It's one of the reasons I also decided not to stream uh, Torment, Tides of Numenera, or uh, you know why I felt like Pillars of Eternity and Tyranny were bad premiere runs, because it was like, oh, there's so much to talk about. It's just me talking the entire time, and nobody wants to hear just me talking the entire time. Um, that being said, I do have to admit, having gone through Shadowrun relatively recently, I actually don't remember how long it's been as of right now, I did enjoy this a lot better than the first game. The biggest impression I was left with uh, was that it felt more like XCOM. In a good way. I'm actually someone who has sung the praises significantly and consistently over the recent XCOM and XCOM 2. Especially XCOM 2 with uh, the expansion whose name I can't think of right now. Really helps to make the game uh, far more interesting. Obviously this doesn't have quite the same level of depth that that does, but it's definitely felt like it was leaning in that direction. Uh, one of the things I was reminded of consistently was, well, okay, quick quick sidebar in the middle of my sentence here. I'm really bad at German pronunciations, and I'm going to mess up a lot of these words. I'm going to try my best, but please forgive me. So I ended up leading on Dietrich a whole lot uh, throughout the course of the game because he was just too useful. He was basically my most useful party member. All right, let's get rid of those buffs, and let's get these buffs going. He was pretty much my primary dispeller. He did nothing but support, and he was probably the linchpin of most of my victories. I actually ended up playing this game without cheats uh, because, well, honestly, because I didn't find any acceptable cheats, so I kind of didn't have anything to go with. So I was just like, all right, whatever, let's just go. Um... I also have to say really quick, though, I, when I first saw the Vindicator, I was like, oh, yeah, because I love a good minigun, right? I've I've lived in miniguns ever since Wolfenstein 3D, which is probably about as far back as that goes for me personally. And then I got it, and I was like, oh, this thing is crap. Two AP just to reload it? Jesus Christ. Uh, <clears throat> One of the things I do also like about this game uh, is that it felt like a weird combination of older games, but done better. One of the things that I was reminded of is the finale in, in this regards. Anyone remember Fallout 2? I don't want to, I guess I shouldn't spoil Fallout 2, but in, all I'm going to say is that in the end of Fallout 2, you have two final bosses a dialogue final boss and a gameplay final boss. And I liked that. I liked that idea of challenging the player in both ways. Do you have a high speech skill? Can you pick the right options, etc.? And how's your combat loadout, right? Same thing here. There's basically nothing you can do to avoid fighting Audrin, or however the heck you say his name, unless, of course, you go with the bad ending, which I'll talk about later. And I like that. I like being challenged in both methods. And, of course, i got to be honest, killing Audrin was incredibly satisfying. I want to talk about Audrin really quick, though. I don't have much to say about his character. He obviously pissed me off, uh, mostly because of what he did to Amzel. But what I like... What I like... What I like about Audrin is that despite being basically a horrible person, he's still more relatable than he probably should be. One of the very strong impressions I got through this game is that the world is awful. Now, I don't mean that in like the the way that some people tend to say that about either real life or any fictional setting or whatever. No, I mean like the world is just wrong. Like this is actively a wrong state of being and it's horrible. 
And Audrin's mentality of just screw it, I just want the chaos to spread, I want to watch the world burn, was strangely understandable. And it made a lot of his uh, motivations make a lot more sense throughout the course of the game. What I also find funny is that he's not particularly smart or clever or really anything. He's got nothing going for him character-wise, except for the fact that he more or less literally cheats. I may have missed it, but I'm wondering what the lore explanation is for the fact that he has 6 AP every turn, and the fact that he can actually use the minigun as a result of his increased increased AP, because he's got the damn Vindicator, and it kind of negates that uh, downside. Uh, speaking of him, though, I love... Getting back to the older game concept, I love the entire section of the game where you're trying to hire Alice. Like, I know that sounds weird, because that can and has pissed me off in other games before. You need X amount of money to progress. There's been several RPGs that have done that. Baldur's Gate 2 comes to mind immediately. Now, I love Baldur's Gate 2, but I have to admit, that part of the game really kind of felt like you just sort of stalled in the game. It's like, alright, go adventuring, is basically what the game says. Go adventure for a while, and then you can continue the plot. And... It felt like just an intervention of the story rather than something that kind of naturally flew through it. In this case, it feels a lot more uh, conducive to the overall story and the plot in general. The or Excuse me, the plot in specific and the story in general. The idea of we want to hire this woman because at this point we are severely pissed off at this whole situation. Yeah, given Ignoring what they did to us and what they've done to those around us and what they did to Amsel, we need to go after these people. We need to stop... The dragon. I'll get to that in a minute. And um, and we need and we need to do this. So we're going to run around. We're just going to raise money. And it's not like I don't know. The tone is different. The execution is different. Even though it is functionally the same thing, it is better application. This is something I've been talking about so much in my ruminations this year. Is the idea of you know there's a good game mechanic. Well, uh, there's no such thing as a good game mechanic. There's just game mechanics that are implemented well. And I feel like this pause to go to go get money was better done than in previous games like Baldur's Gate 2. <laughs> Just my opinion. The game did feel more, uh, still very, had that modular feel to it like the first game did. It felt more polished overall. I think the personal missions helped a lot, which from what I understand is actually unique to the director's edition. And uh, I... <sighs> I guess this is just probably one of the best examples of TIE, effect, TIE Fighter that I've seen in a long time. For those of you not aware, uh, the idea of TIE Fighter is a very old idea. You know, you've got your first game, and then they do the sequel, and the sequel's just better in every way, right? Because they know what they're doing, and they've got all the hard work out of the way. But it's what I usually call expansion effect, although it can apply to sequels just as well. You know, the idea of going from Neverwinter Nights to uh, Shadows of Unruntine was a significant uh, climb up in overall quality. Same deal here. So despite the fact that it still had that weird, almost fan-made campaign feel to it, it was still better done to the point where I only noticed it for a few parts, mostly towards the beginning of the game. So I was with that. Um... So story-wise, I actually don't have that much to say about the story of this game, as weird as that may sound. I mean, there was a lot of good little stories, like going after the person responsible for wiping out all those people, the Mark VI thing, that was great. Um, 
the entire thing, thing with Humanus, that was nice and a good mission for Dietrich. But I just don't have a lot to say about them. This is a problem I run into every now and again, where there's something that's just good, but I have nothing to discuss. I have nothing to ruminate on. It was good. Moving on. And I, and, and I can say why it was good, but that, that it just doesn't feel like there's anything significant there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover the points that really got my brain going as far as this game, and then we're going to cut it off. First of all, one of the things I noticed was a significant theme throughout the course of the game is that we have most of the main party members. Blitz doesn't really qualify here. He's just kind of... Uh, <laughs> it also felt like his story arc just kind of stopped. Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm the only one who had that impression, but it felt like he had the beginning of a story arc and then to be continued. I don't know. We'll see about that. But anyways... Um, we had Dietrich, of course, and uh, Iger. Eager. God, I, I told you I'm going to screw up these names. I want to bring up Dietrich and e Iger most specifically because both of them have their own nice, varied background. You know, the punk rocker guy who discovered the consequences of unrestricted anarchy without the power to back it up, and the ex-military who really prefers things to go by the book in order to ensure that the people she cares about are fine. You know, good backgrounds, well fleshed out. I like it. What I found most interesting, though, is that most of the party, and this can apply to you, you of course have a fairly large amount of options with regards to how you progress with the game, but the way I played it was most of us were generally good people. And that struck me as odd, given the setting. I mean, we're in the frickin' F state, right? <laughs> we're in anarchy land. And yet we are people who generally lean more towards good than evil. Now, and I mention that because it's not like we're we're the Marios. It's not like we're James Rayner running out trying to help people all willy-nilly. But instead, if... It was more like if presented something overtly cruel or malicious or evil, most of the party members tend to push away from that. Like, automatically, regardless of your interactions. In fact, if you specifically go in a direction which is actively cruel or malicious, your party members hate you for it. And will barely tolerate you for the rest of the mission. Basically, uh, I believe Dietrich flat out will say, I don't know because I didn't do this, obviously, uh, but I read up that Dietrich will flat out say something along the lines of, I'm only sticking with you because we need to finish this mission to deal with what happened to Monica, and then I'm out because screw you. But I do like that. It kind of brings to mind why this group is, in fact, the main party and why they're the ones who are so active, because... Well, to be completely blunt, in general, the lazy, well, I'm saying this wrong, the evil option, the, the cruel option, the malicious option, tends to be more lazy because it involves less work, less effort, and less caring. And thus, people who care more are more likely to be the people who are active and proactive in order to actually accomplish something, right? It is also worth noting, though, and this is another thing, and this especially applies to Dietrich and Iger, that both of them probably wouldn't have been that leaning if not for the crap that happened to them in the past. You know, the people dying of Dietrich and the guy who shot the woman uh, in Iger's backstory are both excellent examples of what I'm talking about. Which brings me to Glory, who I haven't mentioned yet. Now, Glory, I don't have much to say about her in specific, although she follows the same trend as everything I just mentioned. You know, she was a person, she went through some crap, and as a consequence of crap going through, would like to be a better person than not. That's cool. I like that. What I like more about her is she is probably one of the best examples in 
in the games that I've played, in the Shadowrun stuff that I have played over the years, of the very concept of essence and its application in lore. Now, this is not exactly a new concept. You know, more cyberware, less essence. Very, very linear. And that's actually a function of the tabletop thing, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, please forgive me if I'm incorrect about that. It's actually been a long time since I played Shadowrun tabletop, like in the decade-plus range. <laughs> but I love the idea that your literal soul is affected by how much of yourself is being replaced by something that shouldn't be there. The idea I've always personally got from it is that essence isn't a factor of how biological you are, which I know some players have looked at it like that. Instead, it's more a respect of how natural you are, which sounds like the same thing, but, but isn't necessarily. Because it means that the whole point is that the artificial stuff is unnatural and thus disrupts your overall flow of essence, thus disrupting your, for lack of a better word, soul. This is probably, so, so Glory and her deliberate chunk, 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 to get rid of her magic, to get rid of being a toxic mage, to try and push away from everything she did with regards to the adversary and that whole incident with her mother, that makes sense. But it also is highlighted with the Mark VI thing I referenced idly earlier. The Mark VI walking around at negative three essence. Now, by the general rules of the setting, that's something that shouldn't be. It's just being kept going. And we find out that the, that the life, the soul, the, the mind, whatever you want to call it, is still in that thing. And, and immediately kills itself as soon as you re remove the restraining bolt, so to speak. Which is, of course, what I did. And that was just, Wow! <laughs> Holy crap, because it implies a lot about that nat natural thing I mentioned. And also kind of gets across the idea that if you decide to prolong something unnaturally, that it will also lead to bad things, which kind of feels like one of the overall themes of the work in general, this, this push between natural and unnatural. I mean, Lord knows that the dragon, which I'll talk about next, so I guess I'll just go ahead and try this here. Feuerschwinger. God, I hope I'm doing that right. I actually looked it up. I actually had uh, a friend of mine who speaks German, and I said, how do I pronounce this? And he was like, okay, I'm going to record a voice clip for it. It should Feuerschwinger, was how he said it. So I'm trying really hard here, you know, Firewing. The way uh, Feuerschwinger exists and functions in the setting makes sense to me with that idea in mind, the idea that just the very concept of technological progress in itself not necessarily being a bad thing, but in how it's applied uh, one of the biggest things that's mentioned is the Industrial Revolution. Remember, she got up before the magic and the metahuman thing really exploded. The, the Dragon Fall uh, actually happened before the majority of the more metahuman and magical things happened. Thus, she was reacting to just the world. As in, if she just woke up basically today in real life, and she saw all that had happened... And, and went completely into a rage, and into the pain and nightmare of, of having to deal with all of that. Now you could take some environmentalist thing out of this, but the problem is I think the word environmentalist, and this is just getting a little bit into controversial, but the very word environmentalist is too generic. It doesn't actually apply to anything specifically. It just, it just means you're in favor of the environment, which doesn't mean anything. Again, I speak specifically to the idea of precision of use to use technology to, I mean, we do have the technology to aid the environment as well. And we actually do use that in certain cases in real life. Um, we do, ha we can use technology to help the natural grow and flow of our own bodies to help heal. In fact, most medical technology, most really good medical technology, I should say, of the modern age right now, isn't fixing your body, it's 
helping your body fix itself, thus going more to the natural thing rather than the artificial thing. But the theme I get, again, very strongly in this setting is that their technological progress as time went on moved more towards the artificial thing, forcing the body, fixing the body for itself, thus artificially changing it, lowering your essence, and generally leading to the deranged state that we have in the world. Now, I do like that. I do like that overall theme. It does paint a very dark picture, but it also paints a picture that is fixable, which is why this didn't depress me to the same extent as, say, The Last of Us, which, by the way, it was presented, has no good option. There's nothing good that's going to happen there. The world's screwed, whatever. Everyone should just shoot themselves. Um, by contrast, here you could see how this situation can be resolved, which brings me to the next thing that I really did like about this work. One of the things that I love about this story is that you are ants. We are tiny little specks over there in a corner of one city, and yet we still... They manage a nice uh, balance point between being insignificant and maintaining that. We never become part of the big leagues, not really, not until the end, if you debate that, and still being able to have a significant impact. Now, that is not easy to do story-wise, to do some kind of a, a lower-deck style story and still have them be uh, if impacting on a grand scale. There are precious few games or stories in general that pull that off, and this game did that very well. Um, I think a lot of that is on the strength of the fact that so much of the world was concerned with other things rather than the specific main problem, and that the main problem was being posited in a way that would fundamentally change the setting in a long-scale term. You'll also notice that we are allowed to make significant changes that can alter the story, but aside from two... All of those can exist in canon. None of them really contradict canon. My favorite, of course, being freeing Feuerschwinger uh, and being and the, in thus freeing her, saying, "Look, go ahead and go to sleep. Just just chill for a bit. When you wake up, things will be better." Thus, that choice can be made, but won't the impact of that won't really be felt for God knows how many years, and as a consequence of such, will not impact the canon in any significant way. The only two choices I mentioned, and I, there could be more that I'm not aware of, are uh, freeing Apex, which is just a dumb idea to begin with, and the bad ending, which is something I want to talk about really quick. Getting to Vauclair, <laughs> getting to Vauclair, I was like, hmm... He was a very understandable, likable, affable individual, and I completely got where it was coming from. I actually have something over here on my second monitor I want to share with you really quick, and I quote, There are 17 great dragons in the world today. 17 ancient worms, millennia old, slowly dividing the planet into 17 piles of gold to nest upon. In front of our eyes, once upon a time, they burned castles to steal the treasure we collected, laid waste to entire armies. But here, in the sixth world, it's no longer about tooth and claw and fiery breath. Now it's public relations, marketing, mergers, acquisitions. You see it every day. Dragons on the tritio, on the boardrooms. They gather influence, wealth, power, continually hoarding, hoarding until one of them sits atop it all. Perhaps not in this cycle of the world, perhaps, perhaps not in the next, but one day, one worm will stand alone, triumphant, with all humanity as its cattle, and with all the world as its prize, and that I will not allow. It's a quote from Dr. Vauclair, and I totally get that. 
<laughs> that's the kind of mindset that I am completely with in general and tend to kind of lean towards when it comes to fi fictional interactions. You know, do I choose to, to aid the gods or do I choose to kill them? I mean, that's an easy choice. Stab, stab. So, um, did I mention that this game... I, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but this is relevant now. This game added something that was really missing in the first game, in my opinion. Uh, basically, quick save. The ability to just save more or less at will. That was very helpful and very useful because uh, I got the bad ending first. <clears throat> yeah, no, let's kill all the dragons. Shoot, okay, let's do it. All right, the dragons are dead, and then the world descends into nightmarish terror until everyone is dead. Whoa, 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 okay, reload, reload. But with all seriousness, what? I am not 100% familiar with Dragon, uh, with Dragon, with Shadowrun lore. I'm not. I'm, I'm not super familiar with the setting. I know Cyberpunk better than I know uh, Shadowrun, for example. Is this always been a thing? That the dragons are, are mandatory for the survival of existence? For maintaining the barriers to keep eldritch, ungodly horror stuff from showing up? From literally distorting the planet into a nightmare scape? from forcing the, the metahumans from, from barely being able to survive into actual extinction. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I, I guess I just missed the part where they could literally launch Cthulhu at the Earth if the dragons weren't there. So I reloaded <laughs> and tried that again. Um, but I do like how how they made him such an understandable and interesting character. I, I, I found him to be one of the more engaging antagonists that I've seen in recent memory. Um, which brings me, of course, to Monica, who I haven't really mentioned yet. She really doesn't have that much impact on the, the plot, but you can feel the echoes of her existence throughout the course of the story, which I like. You know, we get to see a lot of the, uh, let's call it the f the footsteps that she has left on the city and all of the people's lives that she's impacted, which, of course, leads naturally to several side quests as you're going through, which is a great way to introduce side quests. You know, oh, my God, if she did such and such or she didn't give me this this kind of money or she didn't encourage me with this thing and so forth and so on. But Monica is also interesting to me because I have a question for you, as I often do during these ruminations. Do you think there is any of Monica in Apex? Apex was interesting to me mostly because it functions as a, what I would usually call a lower-end AI, or a high-end VI, if you prefer. Not something that I would really qualify as truly sentient or sapient, but something that is trying to get there trying as hard as it can to get to the point of true sentience and sapience and being able to unleash itself upon the world. Which is one of the reasons why, unlike the Vauclair choice, freeing Apex was absolutely not a choice for me. I'm like, no, 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 no. You literally eat people's brains. No, that's, that's not happening. And of course, you know, you killed Monica. But then it mentions how Monica changed it. Ah, I have this new desire to be and to learn and to grow and to help fix the city and blah, blah, blah. And according to one of the endings, Apex does actually unify the city, which is against canon. But I don't think I agree. 
This is my opinion, obviously. And I, as ever, I ask this question because I want to hear your opinion as well in the comment section. But I don't think there's any of Monica in Apex, either a literal imprint or a ghost in the machine or, you know, it learning from any of her mindset or philosophy or whatever. I think what actually happened was it, it you know, it killed her, was impacted by her, probably because of the nature of what she was, and then decided to use this as a means to try and make that next step up. To me, this just seems so obvious. I personally can't see it as debatable, but I have seen a lot of people debate this, so I would love to hear other guys' thoughts, especially from people more familiar with the setting than I am. Uh, the whole thing with Alice is probably one of the best examples of this. It flat out lets Alice go just to lure us further in because it's trying to use us. As an aside... This is one of the rare instances where I felt that Mercy killing someone who has been through nightmares torture was not the better option. <laughs> it sounds horrible now that I say it like that. But Feuerschwinger was someone who I sympathized with more than anyone else in the whole thing. Which is a nice twist. You know, oh my god, we must stop this evil dragon cult thing. And I have to admit, the whole time going through, I just sort of naturally assumed she was behind everything. She's a dragon. I mean, right? <laughs> I, I do know that about this setting. She's a dragon. And so obviously she's behind everything. It's just kind of their nature of, oh, she's a, she's a prisoner. Huh. What I really find myself wondering, though, is if there's any other dragons similar to her. Dragons whose nature it is not to rule and to hoard, but instead to be uh, guides or more empathically linked with aspects of the existence. I don't know. I did very much enjoy this game. I'm actually going to be picking up a Hong Kong like in a few minutes here as soon as I take a bit to recover and get some food in me. Uh, so it'll be interesting to go into Hong Kong after this one. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time, guys.